Welcome to the Network Age. I'm Hapsel Rigner, and I'm joined this week by my handsome co-host, Mitchell Ritson, who'd normally reply at this stage, but he's currently on a hunting trip, attempting to impress his future father-in-law by killing many, many small, innocent animals. A fully endorsed Network Age activity. With us in conversation is publisher, Twitter raconteur, and prizer of passages, Lomez. We discuss his views on what's wrong with traditional publishing and hear about what's on the horizon for passage publishing. Without further ado, our conversation with Lomez. Welcome back, everyone. And now we are joined by Twitter's favorite raconteur, the founder of Passage Press and a wonderful writer and uh, commenter on all of the uh, wild and terrible things that are happening in our world today. Lomez, thank you so much for joining us. Mitchell, thank you for the introduction. Hapsol, uh, also thanks for having me on. This is uh, exciting <laughs> stuff here. Can't wait. Yeah, rivet, it's going to be content, good, man. Uh, riveting space. Yeah, yeah. World's definitely. finest and, podcast. Uh, and, mm-hmm. That's and uh, with the three, the three finest minds of our generation. Some, <laughs> some have called us the three finest minds of our generation. We're often grouped that way by the critics. Mitchell's mom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When, when she gets through every episode, that Lomez guy, you got to have him on. Um, so we, uh, we, we recently uh, hung out in person. Uh, you spoke at Assembly, Urban Assembly in Lisbon, where we all. Uh, drank some wine together and, and got to got to chatting and had a, had some really interesting conversations and we wanted to have you on to discuss the the work you're doing um, especially with respect to to passage press and decentralized publishing and art creation and you spoke on a panel um, with some other really interesting people in, including, Delicious Tacos, another another great Twitter writer. And so we wanted to, you know, hash out these ideas, see if we can reach any conclusions. Maybe we could fix art while we're uh, while we're on the podcast. Um, yeah, why not? Do yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Aim high. Um, so why don't we why don't we start by you telling us um, a little bit about Passage Press, what it's mission is and maybe locate it in some of your your personal history how you how you ended up involved in this project yeah okay i can uh i can take a stab at that so uh passage press is a new publisher new publishing house uh that i started a couple of years ago and um it started fairly with fairly modest ambitions i I didn't actually set out to start a publishing company um i really just wanted to run uh what amounted to like an arts and writing contest um i got this idea from actually mike anton wrote an essay for i am 1776 in which he was sort of bemoaning the lack of let's say dissident right art i don't like that term dissident right uh certainly not as a modifier for art but that's kind of the general (laughs) sphere that this exists in, and, and we can talk about, actually, it's, it's probably worth talking about why uh, using the modifier dissident right art like doesn't really capture the full spirit of what we're doing. But for the sake of this summary, it'll, surfi- it'll suffice. So um, one thing I, I realized that having read that article was that um, it wasn't so much that there was a lack of talent or a lack of willingness to make 
this kind of art or undertake these sort of creative enterprises, which would include fiction and include poetry. Yeah, it wasn't that the that the talent wasn't there or the desire to make that art wasn't there. There wasn't really an arena for this stuff to be broadcast to an audience. Um, what you have is a sort of loose collection of people on Twitter, let's say, or a variety of blogs where there's a lot of creative output, um, but it's all just sort of happening in this one-off way. You know, you might visit this one person's blog over here or follow this one Twitter account, um, but there wasn't anywhere to sort of uh, collect all this work and um, certainly not vet uh, this this work and, and select from it what is sort of the best examples. Um, and then there were also a lot of people who don't have blogs or, or don't have uh, big platforms on Twitter or elsewhere, but who nonetheless have some desire to create art. Okay, so this is all a long way of saying that I thought I'd start this contest. Um, we put up uh, 20, we ended up putting $20,000 up of money um, just to see what would happen. Which, that's real say, money, you know, that's really- It is, that's more it's than, actually a lot of money for a contest. Getting like given, you know, as, as someone who is, um, you know, loosely participating in some of the academic fiction world, which I know you're, you're familiar with, you know, when someone gives me 50 bucks for a story, I'm like, hell yeah, you know, let's go, let's frame that check. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, uh, not to give away too much, but having been a part of that world um, and understanding the economics of it, one thing I was trying to do with this contest was maybe draw people out from that world who might have been a little bit skittish about participating in a contest that was, again, affiliated with this thing we're calling like the dissident right um, or like the Twitter right or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I, I ended up putting $10,000 up my own money. And so when I say we put up 20000 almost immediately, I ended up getting donations from a variety of people online and we got it up to 20 k and within three months, we ended up with over 2,000 submissions, uh, which was wow. remarkable. Again, having been in this world and seen what sort of slush piles look like, even for relatively prestigious magazines, 2,000 submissions was pretty, was, was just, it's just a lot. Um, and beyond just the volume, there was some really good stuff in there. So we put together this book. Um, and of the best selections, uh, called the passage prize anthology. Um, it was quite expensive to put it all together. We ended up selling the book for $400. We printed 250 of them and sold them out within, I think two or three months of making them available. This demonstrated to me that there was more than just an appetite for creative production, but there was a real viable economy. Mm -hmm. uh, that you could potentially tap into. Um, and so I started exploring the idea of running a, a more traditional publishing house um, where we would publish original works of fiction, original works of nonfiction, maybe reprints of older books, et cetera. And over the course of the last year, I uh, came in contact with um, some partners who have experience um, in the startup world and then also in publishing who are also aligned uh, in sort of some fundamental way with this project. And, uh, and I mean, it, it's, sort, it, it's less so an ideological alignment and more so what I call a sort of spiritual alignment. Um, and these partners have helped me sort of accelerate uh, this project. 
and grow it into something far more substantial than just a, a uh, you know, writing an arts contest. So now we have a full scale publishing house. In 2024, we are slated to produce, I think, uh, upwards of 20 books, which is quite a lot. Um, and hopefully our growth will continue. We've, uh, with the three books we have to date, uh, we've sold out of every single copy of every printing we've done. So it still remains to be seen what the, uh, you know, ceiling is on this audience and, um, you know, who the, who the actual consumer base is. But so far we've been, uh, sort of pleasantly rewarded, uh, with our efforts. That first book that you put out was was the was a physical copy of the Passage Prize, right? Did you did you also after doing the I guess hardback version, did you continue printing? Yeah, we did. Uh, so we did 250 of the hardbacks, not knowing what you know. They cost me quite a lot of money. I, I ended up spending over 250 dollars, I think, per book to produce it. Um, so it was really expensive, and that doesn't even count the massive man hours to do all the design and layout and the distribution and everything else. So it was really expensive to produce. Um, and I wanted a cheaper they're version. They're quite lovely objects, right? You know, like, they're, yeah, they're I mean, uh, the, the first one I would say in hindsight, I'd rate it like a B. Okay. It's like a B in terms of okay. quality, which is good. Okay. Compared to most books, it's very good. But I think the second one we produced that was released uh, earlier this year is much better. I mean, it's it's really something you know to be very proud of, and I, I certainly am as as, uh, as the editor and and uh, the person who produced it. But to get back to your uh, uh, question, Hapsol, we we then subsequently printed 500 copies of a paperback version, which was still sort of really nice paper, full uh, four color art, you know, um, really nice done for $50. And um, we sold out of those as well. I want to I want to put some of this in context for people who don't spend a lot of time in the in the book world. Uh, people don't buy books anymore. And beyond not buying books, people really don't buy journals of submissions that are that are coming in online. And you know, we know this as, as people who have, you know, seen submissions and, and spent time submitting like the numbers that you are getting and the enthusiasm that you're generating and the fact that people are pay, willing to pay hundreds of dollars for a book no matter the quality um is is to me truly astounding and was what sort of really made me first pay attention to the project when uh you know i heard oh dissident art thing sure cool and then people started i started hearing about all these people who are buying it and the cost and still just what the numbers it was doing is it it really astounding to me and i think that whether or not someone feels um like politically aligned with um you know some of the 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 talk the dissonant right uh, around this there's no arguing with the fact that there is real desire for a, a different type of publishing that is that is showing up here in your work yeah. Um, so I, you know, I get this question a lot, but I actually, I, I'd like to pose a question to you guys. So you're sort of observing the space from some distance and, and I don't know how involved you are in like, you know, the dissident right or Twitter sphere or whatever, but I'm a bad person. Mitchell is not, not quite oh, as bad as I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've come out before on, uh, both to you, both in person and on the show as the, the token, uh, liberal of the of the thing but it's you know 
I'm, we call them libtards. I'm loosely aware. Okay? Yeah, libtards. Lib that's that, I'm taking that back. Actually, it's uh, that's our word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a good blue collar word. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so wait, hold on. I'm because I'm, I'm curious about this. Then, like, so when I, you know, I'm so far like inside of it that it's hard for me to kind of see it clearly, like how this is playing out, and like you said. Uh, to sell six figures worth of books that amount to anonymous amateur submissions to like a writing and arts contest. I mean, it's beyond just remarkable. As far as I know, it's sort of unprecedented. I don't know that something like this really has existed anywhere. Uh, Not at So anyway, I'm, I'm curious why you think that is what is happening in this space or what is not happening in sort of mainstream art spaces that you're seeing people sort of gravitate to what's going on here and be willing to spend again, like mid uh, three figures on, on an art book. Why is that happening? I have thoughts, but Mitchell, do you have thoughts? Well, I, you, you may be more qualified than me as, as not only um, dissident er, but onliner more online than I am. Um, I, you know, my sort of armchair analysis and in your, your talk at assembly, you, you pointed towards some of this is that I think people might come to um, like the passage press stuff from a number of different directions. I think for artists, there are some people who um, maybe tried to go a traditional path and found that they weren't wanted um whether or not you know you could say that's because they're they're white men writing white men fiction or whatever but like there is a uh, a type of person who whose work is not as welcome in mainstream publishing i also think that those types of journals and things are just less relevant to people i mean the numbers you're doing talk like how many people are buying copies of like the tampa review or something mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's probably it might not make three figures um and then I, I think that related to that is uh, the there are a lot of people online who who maybe I don't know felt alone and then found a community online and then looked around and saw that there wasn't um, anyone representing their their beliefs and their voices. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of I feel like I'm actually saying the. Uh, all the reasons that people on the left give for uh, putting more black people in McDonald's commercials yeah. is, you know, is about representation, about being able to imagine their heroes. But I, I, I don't know. I think you people do want that. They want to be able to recognize themselves. Yeah. If you mean like uh, people with sort of dissident art opinions want to read distant art writers, then yeah, that's true. But there's a, I mean, it, it's a, it's a big question. Like, what happened to the American novel? It uh, disappeared from the scene. And for a while, it it existed in, I mean, the novel uh, existed in Latin America for a little while. But uh, writing has become incredibly boring. And I, I will qualify that, which is to say that, uh, I mean, for me, it's incredibly boring because nobody writes for the ear anymore. I, I, always, mm-hmm. I always harp about people not writing for the ear they write for the eye because they learned to do their writing from movies and MFA programs. MFA programs are like the scourge of the writing world. Sorry to say that 
there's some people, you know, close to this podcast who studied uh, in MFA programs, but who? I mean, I don't know. Who would do that? Name them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get them out of here. No, it's so there's the there's the the same problem that happened that that like you know say um, Moldbug talks about the cathedral. Well, the same the 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 thing that happened there is that you know if you go to Stanford, you have the same opinions, or the Brain Trust has the same opinions as uh, someone who went to Columbia, right? Like it's the same or Harvard. So MF the MFA program is like the sameification of of writing the, he's the thing is i mean you're well you're 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 you know you're right and you're wrong that's my great qualified is that like i think that criticizing even um the type of literature that you're talking about is like criticizing blockbusters is that even um by now anything that like gets let's say like considered for a Pulitzer or um, the people's prize along those lines that goes through. Yeah. I mean, it represents, it represents us. No, um, it doesn't represent me, man. But I think that I know I'm, <laughs> I'm I, what I'm saying is that I think that anything that makes it through that process, even if it's, you know, outside of the mainstream in that it doesn't sell particularly well, it's, it still is a type of, literary blockbuster that goes through all these filters that goes through a lot of people trying to samify it for money. But to say that there are not writers, you know, writing great novels or writing for the year is just incorrect. I think it's just about what is easiest to have access to and what gets marketed the best, but there's plenty of great novels being written still. And I, I mean, I, you know, when was the last time, do you do you read contemporary novels at all? I guess I push back on that. I feel like there's a lot of doomerism about art, and I think that's like part of the issue is on the the looker as I well. I mean, so yeah, sorry, I thought that was aimed at me. Uh, I I mean, I used I used I, to read contemporary novels, but you know, like how how often how well, often do you go to the to the poison sure. well once you discover it's poisoned? Yeah, I have thoughts about this particular issue, and I think it's unique to literature and doesn't actually apply to like film, for example. Literature's unique, novels are unique in the sense that they are an artistic experience uh, from the standpoint of the consumer that requires the most uh, time investment. And uh, because of that, you can't just easily sort of uh, consume huge numbers of books. I mean, some people are able to do this, but for every like one novel that you're able to read just because of the sheer time commitment, you might be able to watch, I don't know, 10, a dozen films, maybe even more. Um, they also require a great deal of attention. And so uh, you're asking a lot of your reader. And so if there's, if, if you lose this sort of gatekeeping mechanism, if the big publishers and, uh, you know, the people who give out awards and sort of confer status on uh, great work and sort of determine what is great work, um, are negligent in that responsibility, you're left with this sort of sea of material and it's virtually impossible for an individual on his own to identify the signal from the noise. And, mm -hmm. it's, and, and when you're just confronted and when, and now this gets even worse when it's not just that these gatekeepers are neglectful, they're actively sort of malicious towards certain types of stories and towards certain types of readers. And it becomes 
really impossible um, for someone to identify. Like, like Bishop, I, I assume you're correct. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and say you're correct. <laughs> there are good novels still being written. But how in the world would I find one? You have to read a lot of bullshit uh, to, to find it. And I think that like, you know, the, the, the best answer is I think you find people you trust like in, and try to be a little bit further down the, the, the funnel than them. And, yeah. um, but like, I think it is, it is true that the contemporary books I read, you know, writ large are less impressive than the, than the older ones. I mean, part of that is just what has survived. And, you know, another thing that this, I think is related to what we're talking about is sort of the, the disintegration of the Western canon, um, which, you know, is, is probably falling apart for similar reasons that we're talking about certain types of stories are not as welcome in publishing anymore. But I think that you, there, the can, the canon is not only a description of what is culturally relevant to us and, you know, a description of a type of historical artistic process and evolution, but it's, it's curation, right? It's, it's content curation to use our, our parlance and helps direct us towards what is valuable, what has stood the test of time. And a lot of the, the mechanisms that have sorted through that for us are disintegrating or changing their priorities. We could put, I could push back on that a little bit. Um, I, I don't think Please. you're wrong in the sense that the canon has been sort of scuttled and reshaped or there's this attempt to kind of rewrite literary history. Um, I would ask like why that's happening, who's making those decisions. Uh, and I, I'd also say in response to the idea that you, you have to find people you trust um, and then rely on them to lead you towards what is good and maybe what is most relevant to your unique tastes. Um, while that's true, I also think there has been a kind of, yeah, this is where you almost get into like uh, the territory of, of talking like a leftist. Like I could say something like there has been a systematic erasure of, you know, <laughs> straight God forbid men. you sound like a leftist. <laughs> <laughs> and that this has been like this top down uh you know matriarchal like um erasure of of white men and their stories and actually i i think i could come up with a pretty clean narrative to describe why that's happened um and and to sort of demonstrate the point but um let's just say that we can look at the numbers and know that uh men in particular um, and I don't actually know what the racial like, uh, demographics look like here, but if you look at the number of people who buy books and read books, it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know, five to one female to male. And so we'd want to ask why that's happened. Why have men just stopped reading fiction? Because it's terrible. Yeah, that, that would be <laughs> my argument as well. It's, it's gotten worse. It's gotten progressively worse. And and even if you don't want to make that um, judgment, like on the sort of subjective aesthetic evaluation of the work, it is just the case that men have made the determination that it is not worth their time and energy to read what is being put out by uh, mainstream publishers. So you think that's, that's the direction it happened? You think the books caused the lack of reading? 
I think there's just a feedback loop between who's making mm -hmm. these editorial decisions, um, who's in charge of sort of determining which writers are promoted over other writers and what kind of stories are promoted over, over other stories. Um, mm -hmm. This over time might lead to fewer men reading and then fewer men reading uh, indicates to publishers who may just be thinking strictly about their bottom line that we want to then produce more books that uh, cater to our uh, remaining audience, which is women, and then even less men read, and then you get even more female-centric writing, and then even less men read, and on and on, until there's very few um, men reading fiction who are not somehow involved in the literary world. I, mm -hmm. like this is purely anecdotal, but of the men I know under the age of, let's say like 50, the ones who read novels, I can count on one hand, uh, who aren't themselves writers or somehow involved in like creative spaces. Yeah. Or I, I know some, some younger people who, who read novels who don't, who aren't in those spaces, but it's maybe like five to eight books a year for the most well-read, right? Like that's, you know, that, that's like an, an extreme um, yeah. for, for something. And which... It's mostly older stuff or like fantasy mm -hmm. novels. So like there's still guys who read a lot of like sci-fi and, you know, they're reading Neil Stevenson and whatever, but the sort of, you know, whatever we, however we want to like draw the lines around, um, like this genre of literature, sort of, uh, genre, you know, a genre literature, very few men are reading contemporary new literature that I know of. So I, I imagine that, um, most of the, the readers and people submitting to the passage press are male. I mean, I don't, I don't, I imagine you're not doing a big survey, but that, that's what this, this dissonant right online world is mostly i i had actually suspected that would be the case um i would say and it's somewhat hard to tell because people are anonymous though there are mm -hmm. enough people either submitting under their real names or who you know i'm paying out because uh you know with the prize money and i and i learn who they are or just from the content of their work i mean there are ways of just intuiting whether an artist or writer is male or female you may be off one in one case or another but you can <laughs> sort of tell and i would say i would estimate that of our submissions 20 percent are female it's a rough estimate but um it's at least that twitter rate. twitter seems to indicate that if you write a right-wing book you'll get a lot of um girls in bikinis reading it places <laughs> i mean so there's something to it. It's Is that all I need to do? I, th I think so. Do some right-wing dissident um, writing and, and girls in bikinis will show pictures of it on Twitter. That's a guaranteed. That would be great. Well, you know, we, uh, we did an event in LA um, like six or seven months ago, last spring. Uh, it was a reading featuring um, Delicious Tacos. Uh, I said some stuff. Um, there were, Isaac Simpson was there you know, a handful of people in this like Twitter space, broadly speaking, about 200 people showed up to this event. Um, I would say it was, if not fully half female, it was pretty close. Um, so 
the the gender skew isn't quite as extreme as you might expect based on like who's posting the most it's because tacos has slept with half of la yeah he's got this incredible sort sort of dull set baritone voice too. he's very charming and mm-hmm. handsome man yeah i got to um, see, i got to see him in uh lisbon and i will i think it's i think it's okay to oh, yeah, confirm that he's a good looking dude yeah I got yeah. to touch and oh smell my him. God. I was right up next to him. <laughs> up, yeah. That's nice. Yeah. yeah, that'll be the reward for uh, for Passage Prize Three is um, did you get smell delicious smell tacos? delicious tacos? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this I think brings up something that I was interested in hitting on, and we we talked a little bit about this in Lisbon. Is you you have this project that is intertwined with politics and yet you have said that your goal is not to create political art. And I, I think, you know, art political differences aside, I think that like that is admirable and makes sense to me because political art, when it, when it's political first is so often awful. Whereas art that is written from the same convictions that drive your politics, which is about observation and noticing in the world it can create great art you know whether whether that's leftist or 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 rightist it is the the noticing and the care that that makes something so how how do you go about balancing that being from like your your project and and the attention is getting being from a particular political movement and and trying to get art that is is art first rather than political first yeah i mean this is something that um i've obviously thought a lot about um and i don't want political art per se uh, which is art that begins with some kind of political premise or political prior or is, is just a way to make some kind of you know partisan or or I should say an argument that will assist in some kind of like partisan political or even ideological agenda. I think that is inevitably going to be sort of kitsch and lame and, um, and very time limited in terms of its value. Um, so that's not, that's not what I want. It's not the art I like. Um, and it's not the art I'm, I'm interested in the writing I'm interested in publishing, but, um, I'm okay. So, I, I am on the right. My, my mm-hmm. political beliefs, such as they are, are right wing. And uh, that's something that I've come to over time. And what that means exactly is hard for me to say. Like in, in any given instance, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I mean, I, you know, we, we could go through like issue by issue, though that would be pretty boring. I think. <laughs> um, but, I, but I happen to be on the right. Uh, and, and so perhaps... And in my selection of what art I like will tend towards points of view that uh, sort of adhere to those beliefs. But frankly, I'm not interested in that. Um, I would just say that I want to publish anything that is taking an honest sort of unflinching look at the world. And that can come from someone who's a leftist just as well as that can come from someone who's on the right. Um, I tend to think actually that sometimes unwittingly leftists are able to produce the very best sort of quote unquote right wing art 
an example I might use is the HBO show Girls, uh, famously <laughs> Lena Dunham, the, uh, you know, rabid Hillary Clinton supporter, you know, I'm with her, whatever. It's super cringe. She's just like, her politics are super cringe, but she happens to be a pretty good writer. Mm-hmm. And she, what, what she is, is unafraid to sort of tell the truth about her experiences and her point of view of the world. And she's, whether because she's like too stupid to sort of shade over the things that make her worldview look bad, or she's just committed to telling the truth in her art, the point of view that she provides in that show, if you watch that show, it's sort of the best argument against like millennial feminism that you could ever (laughs) produce. And like any right winger who was trying to produce a show or make a show that demonstrated the folly of pursuing this kind of like girl boss, millennial, just sort of uh, sleep with whoever you want without consequences lifestyle, couldn't have done a better job than Lena Dunham does with girls. And it's precisely because she's just sort of telling the truth about the world. Um, She may see it differently, of course, and she may interpret her art differently, but I'm not really concerned with the interpretation of the Mm -hmm. art. I'm concerned with just the thing itself. And so- yeah, well, in some sense, yes. I don't know that the author is dead. And in, in, well, so the author's circumstances and where they're coming from informs perhaps how we view the art. And it's inescapable that if we know something about the author, we are going to sort of read that into their work. But that's not necessarily the final say on what it means. Ultimately, yeah, there's an audience outside the context of the biography of the author who's sort of making a decisions about what they're using this art for or, or what its value is to them, um, either as a community or as individuals. And there's very little an artist can do about that. Um, so yeah, that maybe that's a separate question, but getting back to passage and, and what I want to see out of artists is simply people who are telling the truth. And what's missing, I think, from uh, mainstream publishing is that willingness to allow the truth just be what it is without imposing some kind of uh, political messaging on top of it. And this, I know people who are editors in mainstream publishing. I know people who are agents and I know people who are currently working within mainstream publishing. And I know about the stories of them being asked to sort of rewrite parts of their books or editors sort of gently and sometimes not so gently nudging writers to make various changes to their work so that certain characters who may look or be of a certain persuasion aren't uh, maybe read as harshly, you know, stuff Mm -hmm. like this. So um, what I want to do as a publisher is allow an artist uh, the full sort of scope of their ability to see the world and reflect it back to a reader honestly. And that very well may be, and given where we're situated sort of culturally and politically right now, predominantly from a right-wing perspective, or I should say it's just predominantly going to be quote-unquote right-wing authors. But just as Lena Dunham can produce art that transcends her own personal politics... I would hope that writers and myself included here can produce art, produce writing that uh, transcends the sort of local and sort of parochial uh, partisan or ideological interests that they have. There's another, yeah. um, let's say we're talking about forces that that may have made uh, 
latter 20th, you know, the, like the lo- the latter long 20th century writing, not so good. Uh-huh. And another one that, that I've never, I, I, I rarely hear, hear anyone mention is the coinization of English. And I'll explain what I mean by that, which is that, especially you can see this in movies and television, which is that as English spreads, it becomes more and more important to publishers in any medium to make a book or television show or a movie comprehensible to the Chinese, as an example. Mm. And so what you get is a mass media where you're sort of, you have to go to this like lowest common denominator and the lowest common denominator is uh, China. Is China. Yeah. Chinese. Yeah. To, to be, I mean, like if I, if I gave you like the top mm-hmm. five list of, of shows that the Chinese watch, it's like Friends uh, the Big Bang Theory. They do watch it. all classics. Yeah, <laughs> right. Really, really quality yeah, per- stuff. Perfect shows we all love. But nobody ever talks. I mean, like I, I bring this up just because it's like another thing that I never hear anybody talk about, which is that publishers, uh, again, in any medium, have to chase sort of like the lowest common denominator, and that's uh, people who can who want to read about love affairs with werewolves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, another I mean, that could be I, that could be cool. I think I think if done the right like. You know, mechanically right, though, the right werewolf affair. The problem though is like mechanic, yeah. like mechanically, the the you can't do anything really technically interesting, and um, yeah. also you can't do anything with words beyond sort of like the first definition. So like you know, I I always talk about Mitchell when you and I talk about about literature. I often bring up William Gass, and you could never get you, you can get a Chinese you know like three Chinese people to read William Gass in translation maybe, but my point is that this can't be done on any you know, this quality, this, this standard of writing where you do something deeply technical and the turns of meaning, the allusions. So it's, it has not just to do with like, you know, making the language more simple, but also the cultural tissue doesn't exist, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no touchstone for the Chinese or whomever to relate to the- You're to, saying we, we need to re-educate the Chinese forcibly. Uh, I mean, I'm for that. Mm-hmm. So- uh Habsel, have you read um, T.S. Eliot? Uh, he wrote a great essay that I'd encourage everyone to read, but um, you're basically recapitulating his central argument here. And it's the essay is called Notes Toward a Definition mm-hmm. of Culture. And the basic sort of thesis is that democratization, I mean, Eliot takes this pretty far. Um, and he says that uh, democracy as a political phenomenon also has great effects on art. And what democratization requires is this kind of um, middling effect on, on all cultural production, that the tendency will always be to move towards the middle, what you're calling the lowest common denominator here. And what, I, what you know, a Marxist would say is that this is like, this is what capitalism does to, uh, to culture in, and I, I take T.S. Eliot's side. I think it's, I think it's actually a, a political ph- phenomenon. I think it's, I think it has more to do with sort of the values that arise out of uh, democratization and the sort of lack of not just hierarchy, but the appreciation for what hierarchy allows. And and what he says is that this democratization kills the impetus for high art. But, but more than just killing the impetus for high art, it kills the uh, sort of connective tissue that is required to build high art. So the connective tissue between 
uh, artistic creators now and those of the past. There's this kind of through line of allusions, references. You're building, even if it goes unspoken in your work, you're building off this set of conventions and historical and cultural knowledge uh, that, that can stretch all the way back, you know, uh, centuries, millennia even, but can only be sort of maintained through a hierarchical structure, uh, an elite culture at the top that's mission, that that's actually operates explicitly to preserve that connective tissue. And mm-hmm. once you democratize culture, that goes away and so goes away at least after, let's say, a generation after that cultural knowledge is lost, and that may be precisely where we're at now, um, you can no longer create that stuff and you no longer have an audience who can appreciate it. This is why I'm an Elizabethan. <laughs> the heights of English art. We haven't, we haven't yet built an empire and spread our English to people who don't, who don't speak it natively. This is, uh, this is not some like rant against the Chinese or whomever. It's just that it's really true that you, you, you have no, you know, they have no, no basis to understand our allusions, our cultural allusions. But uh, you think about, you think about when you get a joke. You guys know Arrested Development, right? Like the the rewatching it as we speak okay well there you go so like if you if you get a joke on arrested development it 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 rests on a pretty solid foundation of native english that you just if you do away with that and then you sell to the people who who don't have that then you get this yeah i guess democratization or what i i like to call it coinization but ts ts Eliot was not as good as at, at turning a phrase as me so there's there's a great example of this um that it's it's both sort of incredible and also sad because it could never happen today. Uh, there's this great writer, this great British writer, uh, Patrick Firmer, Patty Firmer, and uh, he he wrote these great travelogues. Um, if anybody likes travel writing, he wrote some of the best travelogues pre-war and then World War II. He he writes this book. Um, he was actually in World War II, and he was I might be getting some of the details wrong, but he's in Greece. And uh, the unit he's with, they end up capturing a German general and uh, they're taking the German general to some camp somewhere and there's no English being spoken between them. And the whole group of them, the, the British soldiers in which Patrick Firmer uh, is, is embedded and this German general that they have are under fire. And in the midst of being under fire, they're like hidden away. And Patrick Firmer, who's like, you know, this Oxford educated guy and this German general are both, both start reciting, uh, Firmer starts reciting one of Horace's odes in, in the original Latin. And then the German general chimes in and there's this great moment where they're like sharing this, you know, this poetry that they're both speaking the, the, you know, the British, the British guy and the German general. And it's this beautiful sort of Latin poem. And this is like the high art, the high culture the sort of, in this case, spans these sort of national lines and belongs to this sort of elite class. And whatever else you think of the preservation of this elite class and the knowledge that they have and the sort of cultural references they share above the kind of plebes beneath them, it you do get something out of this shared knowledge that you can't recreate when everybody is just in the middle. And so... That, there's like this tension between the sort of democratization of culture and also preserving this elite culture where something like that can happen. Something we're seeing not across art and culture, but just in, in general is just a, a flatness 
that comes with the the widening of the world that's you know it's in design it's in our food you can go to any small town in america and a a new burger bar opens and you can know what it looks like inside and what it's serving before it's there and you can head to patagonia and find the same bar and they're playing the shins Mm -hmm. this is this is this happens in art as well and I, i think there is you know all the things that you guys have said so far is this is true there's a desire to appeal to like a wide group a wider market there is just the force the the mass of people that need to be character catered to this democratization so i guess the the question is is like if you believe that this is worth fighting against what for whatever your reason whether it's it's political or whether it's like i simply want the best art to be created what tools are at your disposal what methods do you have is it is it something like the passage press is it forming smaller groups like sort of sharing art amongst smaller groups of people to try to curate it more highly to be able to dive into it in greater depths like what roll back universal literacy that's what we're that's (laughs) that's what we're doing on this podcast that's what we're advocating Mm -hmm. roll it back jefferson was wrong aj knock was right yeah Knock. Knock is always right. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. I actually don't have, like, this is where I get, I I say, like, this is sort of above my pay grade. Like, (laughs) how do do we, like, rebuild culture? I mean, maybe I have some sort of inchoate thoughts about this, or I might, like, reach in one direction versus another. But I would just say the best, the best I can do, the best sort of we can do right now, I mean, we're, it's such an early stage of this, is one, try to, like, just identify and amplify like the best examples of good art that exist outside of this homogenized sort of culture you're seeing. I mean, Bitchell, have you heard the term globo homo, global, global homogenization? Oh yeah. I, I, I think I, uh, I, I read about uh, all the globo homos in, uh, in Foucault, right? That's where they came from. <laughs> so globo homo actually um, is not a pejorative for, uh, you know, uh, global homosexuality. It, it does originally mean global homogenization. And I think, I think what you're describing when you say this sort of, there's this flattening, like the the art of the global village sucks, okay? It's mm-hmm. boring. And what art needs is distinction. You know, we're the real multiculturalists, okay? Like what we want is to preserve some kind of local distinction, locality, mm-hmm. like folkways and beliefs and ideas and ways of thinking and speaking that aren't the same as everywhere else. So I want like great, Southern literature, Southern Gothic literature, for example, to be totally distinct from like Updike style, waspy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, New England literature, to be totally distinct from, you know, Los Angeles, California, noir literature, and et cetera. And I think we're losing some of that distinction or the way that it's coming back is in this totally kind of like forced POC way where you have the same book basically, but it's, but it's paint by number. So, you know, grandma's kitchen in one book smells like she's making curry and naan. And then you read the next book and it's like grandma's making, you know, knishes and whatever else, but it's just the same story told with just these little uh, variables toggled one position Mm -hmm. or another. There's no real distinction there. So one thing I guess that I'm, that I'm sort of groping out with this answer is, 
preserving distinction, okay, across all dimensions, preserving a kind of like authentic uniqueness across all dimensions, and identifying writers who are speaking from a kind of authentic point of view that isn't that hasn't been as sort of infected and stained by this homogenized globo homo style. And I think when we get critical of MFA programs among everything else, I mean, yeah, they sort of filter out maybe more interesting people and they're like terrible selection mechanisms for, for artists, but they also have this sort of flattening homogenizing effect on interesting voices, I think, too mm-hmm. often maybe. So yeah, what am, what am I saying? Distinctness, distinction. Is, is part of this. I was thinking about this also with respect to, to just accents, just how every everybody in America yeah. sounds exactly the same now, no matter where you're from. And I, yeah. I, was, I thought about this because I was watching, you know, the great Libtard show, Great British Bake Off, which I'm, which I do too, <laughs> which I do I really relax. like that show, by the way. That, that is just so good. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. Uh, but everyone sounds so different. Like the just the the range of voices on that show is is totally wild, and you know I live in Montana. I am I am not from there. I've lived a bunch of different places, and everywhere I go, everyone sounds exactly the same. And I think yeah. that it just has to do with what we have access to is all being samified as well. You know, television. I you know tending to no one listens to radio anymore, but like movies, I it, like. Our writing is becoming more similar and it just it becomes harder to preserve these traditions unless you sort of self-isolate or you sort of maybe then make tradition like you tokenize it in a way where you you become all about it to the point that it distorts the actual tradition itself which i feel like yeah. often often happens when you have you know, as as more currency is being given to being distinct in in one of the acceptable categories, then you have you have to embrace it in a way that changes it because it becomes yeah. about performing it instead of just living it. Yeah, I used to. Yeah, I, I used to um, have a southern accent. Where's your accent, Hapsol? Is what I'm saying. Yeah, where where's is my? It? I mean, listen to my mom. Jeez, she's got a real southern accent. Get her on the show. I should get her on the show. <laughs> I remember Miss Betty. Miss Betty, I think is. I think she's still alive. But Miss Betty, you know, if you ever. If you left the house, if you're walking out of her house after visiting for a few minutes and having a sweet tea, she would, uh, as you're walking out, she would say, now what's your hurry? What's your hurry? And we don't have that anymore. There's no Miss Betty's anymore. Mm-hmm. It's sad. I miss Miss Betty. I, I'm I'm upset because I was bullied out of saying hella when I went to the East Coast. As you college. should be, because that's horrible. That's oh, my... Are you that's from my Northern California? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Originally, yeah. And uh, they, that, they took my my cultural heritage from me. Well, now I'm I'm getting appropriated on the word y'all. I've noticed that more and more people are stealing y'all. I, I'm appropriating it. That's become uh, that's become a lefty uh, oh, like shibboleth. You know, folks, folks. <laughs> when y'all, when Alexandria Ocasio Cortez says y'all, uh-huh. I I mean uh-huh. I, the murder rises the up. The thing is, it's the best word. It's like there's not there's it not is the a best good word. It's, that's fair. alternative. That's yeah. fair. It is the best word. It's I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. There's this other thing that happens too when you lose these distinctions is um this is a maybe another like this is, you know, okay, I spent some time too much of my uh previous life sort of reading critical theory and uh, you know, linguists of various stripes. 
And one thing they do, I do get somewhat right, though, is that through language and through sort of vocabulary and our choices with vocabulary, we create a picture of the world that's different than if we used a different set of vocabulary and a different set of affectations and a different set of styles. And uh, one thing I sort of believe in is that biological diversity is a good thing because it allows us to confront sort of novel environments and through a sort of, you know, evolutionary survival mechanism, the better ways of sort of being and thinking persevere over the lesser ways of being and thinking. And when we lose these regional distinctions, even even something as subtle as like, you know, what Havsel was was saying about this, about Betty, you know, uh, greeting him when he walks out the door and that particular sort of drawl and slowness of speech, you're losing like, in some sense, linguistic and intellectual diversity to meet novel environments. And um, I think that's bad. And I think one thing that we're running into, like we, we've sort of hit a cul-de-sac in some sense, I would say. I, I've used this analogy before that in terms of our cultural output, uh, we're stuck. And I'm not the first person to sort of notice this. I think many people observe that we're essentially stuck, that whether or not there's good, let's say, novels or good movies coming out, there doesn't seem to be advancement of any of these forms in a particularly interesting mm-hmm. or compelling way. And one reason we might be stuck is because we're all using the precisely the same sort of vernacular and sort of stylistic affectations to confront this sort of environment that we're in. And what we might need are people who sort of perceive the world through a kind of different way of speech and thinking. I happen to think that maybe what we might find is that um, maybe younger millennials, let's say, who sort of grew up online and speak a kind of, and this is why I think Bap, frankly, has been so successful with his book, is that he's speaking a new kind of vernacular. You know, it's not the Southern drawl or anything, but it's, it's online speech. It's sort of like patois that could only have come out of the existence of like forums and Twitter, et cetera. And that's kind of broken through some of this, um, some of these tall hedges. Uh, and I think we need more of that. That's very yeah. rambling, I understand. It, but, it's uh, what is the yeah. literary equivalent of SoundCloud rap? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, I, I hope not. I hope <laughs> we have a little more attention span than that. But yeah. yeah but I, I, you know, I think that's an interesting point. And I, I kind of would like to come back to the, I don't know, the, the internetification of literature and what that might look like. But what you, you were saying about, about different voices sort of reminded me of something also, that you you said in in Lisbon about the types of people that are submitting to the passage prize, and you sort of divided it in in, in like to the press in general, and you sort of divided it into two camps: um, people who went through the traditional literary traditional literary world, maybe that's um, MFAs, maybe that's journals, and then perhaps and you know, you're sort of guessing at some of this, but you could tell from the writing that perhaps they found they didn't have a place in it and were motivated to uh, find the passage press um, searching, searching for a place that would have them. And then you also have um, a much more amateurish, maybe online first um, writer. Maybe it's the first fiction they've ever written who is sending you stuff 
that is, you know, often quite raw, but you were saying uh, uninhibited by the, the types of things that may have may stop more practice writers from experimenting or from looking at new forms and that you were finding this like really exciting if, you know, flawed sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically right. I think, um, you know, the, you can definitely tell the people who have kind of been through the ringer and passed through the filter and have been working at their craft for a long time. And it's sort of polished in a way that when you do this for long enough, you sort of recognize immediately, you know, this is someone who's put their hours in at this craft and that doesn't always translate into quality um, or sort of uh, this sort of ineffable like artistic value that you're really looking for, but it does translate into sort of readability in some sense. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's like group one. And I would say that's maybe, I don't know, like a quarter of the people who submit maybe less than a quarter. Um, and then you, I mean, then you get a lot of trash and it's like not even worth <laughs> you know, talking about it. It's just bad, you know, but it's like, it's earnest. Okay. They're like trying their hardest and it's, but they're just not, they don't have that thing where they can sit down and like, uh, tell a story. They just, that's not something that they have in them. Um, mm -hmm. that's not a talent that they have, but they, they want to try. And so good for them. And I encourage them all to try. Cause who knows, maybe you have it mm -hmm. without even realizing it, but then there's, yeah, there's this, the category that I'm most interested in is the one you just described, which is the it's very green. It's, it's sort of callow in some sense. Um, but there's a certain kind of energy and a, and, a, and a certain kind of like artistic urgency that it has. Um, but it, but it needs polishing and it needs shaping the problem with it and why there's so few of it that's publishable and good. And this is something I think Habsel brought up early in the call, uh, is that it's these people mostly have only ever experienced like long form narrative um, through either TV, movies, or in some cases, many, many cases, like some big fantasy epic that they've read. You know, they've like read Lord of the Rings maybe many, many times or, <laughs> you know, the, some equivalent to that. Um, and Lord of the Rings is, is very good. It has its, its, its qualities for sure. But you can tell in the way that they shape scenes it's from this visual perspective. They're, they're imagining watching the scene play out in their head and sort of just describing what they see. And there's a lot of stage direction, like, you know, this character walked over to the window and then sat down, you know, and then picked up their fork and they said, and then there's like, they deliver the script. Um, it's not, it's not very literary. So what, what I want to do with these people is like, I want to take them and put them in like a monastery somewhere and just give them like just book after book after book to read and spend, you know, two years of them doing nothing but reading and then have them go right. Uh, having now, hopefully over the course of that time, dispensed with this sort of uh, visual cinematic kind of storytelling um, instinct and hopefully integrated or, or taken on as a sort of default, a more literary form of storytelling. Oh, I, I want to hear, and then that's where we like. I want to hear this. Back. Like, uh, who would you tell them to read? I would just, I mean, you know, I would give them a big. All right, um, let me put you on the spot. Give me like, a give me like survey a survey of writing. Okay, no, no. So I'd start. Okay, I'd just, I'd, I'd pick all the people you'd suspect. You know, I'd pick the Russians, and I'd, 
I'd give them, you know, you know, Dostoevsky and 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 Tolstoy and maybe Let's go. Homer. Although, you know, I don't know actually how much value that. I, I, like, you should read it. But as far as if you, if you want to write and sort of emulate writers, I would really probably give them mostly a survey of, you know, uh, late nineteenth um, up through like late twentieth century novels, and then I just have them find what they like, and so and then I just feed them stuff in that vernacular until they were like sick in the head. And so if they got really into like, you know, early to mid 20th century, like realism, it's just like a heavy dose of Hemingway and, you know, Sherwood Anderson. And we would just, you know, and Fitzgerald and all these people and they, and they would develop their stuff. And then all the people who came after them, you know, and so I'd give them Cheever and, and all the writers who are, who are drawing from that, um, um, sort of particular school, like all the modernists. Um, but it would be up to the writer to decide what, what moves them and what compels them. And that's usually an indication of who, who you are inside. But th- there's also then this third process, which has to happen where they, uh, so the initial thing that most writers want to do is just c- copy what they like. And so you get a bunch of, um, you know, Cormac McCarthy imitations or something, which are always <laughs> terrible, uh, or like Faulkner imitations, which are, which are, you know, equally terrible because that's just, you know, uh, the Cormac McCarthy imitation. Um, and so then they need a period of time where they get that out of their system and they, uh, they sort of expunge that, that style and those influences until they like sort of find their own voice. I mean, all of this takes a lot of time, which is why you have very few sort of precocious novelists, you know, that there aren't like a lot of novelist savants. Like you don't get 16 year old brilliant novelists for the most part. I can't think of really. It's, it's the poets. I mean, it who takes die a young. long time. The poets die young novels in old man's game. You mm-hmm. know, that's, there's hope for us all yet. That's what I, yeah. Um, what I tell myself every <laughs> in the mornings. As you should, as you must mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of survival. Um, so this is the uh, Lomez MFA is you, uh, you, you kidnap in cloister, uh, for a couple of years. Yes. Mm-hmm. I kidnap them. I take them to my, I take them to St. James Island. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just feed them, uh, <laughs> and, a and they'll, dose. Ha- they'll have the trauma, uh, requisite to publish their, uh, their trauma narrative in the, in the mainstream. Which St. Uh, James is this? I'm, I'm curious. The little oh, one. Oh no, this is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, here's the other thing I want to tell anybody who wants to be like a novelist too. You don't have to be like an alcoholic or a drug addict or somehow be broken inside or like, you know, psychologically disfigured in some way, traumatized to be a novelist. Physically disfigured. Um, no. I sort of, I, I hate that. I hate this idea that you know, to be a writer, you have to perform as this sort of like broken alcohol. It's a very sort of leftist. Oh frame. yeah, that's. Have, um, have you ever read any good can come out of brokenness? It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read your it, best self. Oh. I read an interview with Jim Crace or Jim Crache. I I'm not yeah, sure yeah, how to pronounce yeah, yeah, yeah. it. He wrote a great book called Harvest um, that I enjoy a lot, and it's a it's a very um, creepy, unsettling book where very little happens, and he he writes a lot of unsettling books and. There's an interview with him where the the interviewer was commenting about how how normal he seemed compared to his books. Like, you know, how how are you imagining the, these things? Like, you know, I'm just a guy who's married and hangs out at home, and you know, I I do yes. all the the weird 
stuff on the page. And that that's totally fine. If not, you know, you'll probably write a lot more if uh, if that's your if your way of approaching Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, I had a I had a, a mentor once who uh, very wisely told me, um, find stability in your personal life so you can be wild in your creative life. Mm-hmm. And it's it's absolutely true that, um, you know, I, I think now there's there's an important caveat here that uh, to have anything worthwhile to say as a storyteller, I think does require some requisite amount of interesting experience. I don't mm-hmm. think you can just invent whole cloth, um, you know, interesting things to say about the world without having some amount of sort of novel and, and compelling experience in the world. So again, this is why the, there's no real such thing as a precocious novelist or the savant novelist. Like you have to go out there and live. That doesn't mean you have to go out and be a drug addict and an alcoholic and, you know, sleep with, uh, you know, a bunch of ugly women and get STDs and hate yourself and hate your parents and whatever else. There's other ways of, of having novel experience. But I do think I think Younger's right about this. Um, you need uh, you need limit experiences, um, mm-hmm. a life worth writing about, and, and a psyche that can produce good art and good writing has to step out over the edge. Has to step into uh, what he calls the limit experience. And and by the way, um, going on a like ayahuasca trip is not a substitute for actual limit experience. Um, so don't make that mistake. Yeah, you- it depends how many. I think everyone should re- everyone should remember. Like the the um, icon of this is uh, Wallace Stevens, who was like a, a the mailman. He was a VP. No, he was a VP at an insurance company uh, his whole life, and then you know, but the, but he did some other sort of wild stuff, which is every once in a while he'd go down to the Florida Keys and try to pick a fight with Hemingway, and uh, Hemingway famously put him on his ass. But he was a you know otherwise a completely normal. Uh, VP at an insurance company and a drunk. Yeah. But that's normal. I mean, for his time, that's yeah, normal. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, that's normal. I think that's, uh, that's, I, I don't think actually he wasn't no, a drunk. He was, he was, he would go down to the keys and get drunk and try to pick fights with Hemingway to be, to be fair. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that, you know, there's, there's this other thing that's happened in, in mainstream publishing, maybe. At least in the experience, you know, I, I, I've had the occasion to meet quite a few uh, writers, um, some of them quite, quite successful in their craft. Uh, they're mostly boring people. I, uh, th- there may be a couple of exceptions there. I mean, they're, they're sort of interesting and, and perhaps funny and engaging, uh, you know, in a conversation or something. But um, they, don't, they don't live these like outrageous sort of outsized lives of the kinds you see in uh you know movies about writers or so I, I hate movies about writers um but you know it's you can there's a kind of uh honesty with yourself and who you are um that is required i think to be a good writer and anybody going out and sort of trying to force themselves into experiences that aren't natural to who they are and and the attempt to write about that will come off as equally inauthentic so I would, I would caution against, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you were born to be an essayist, you know, that's the other possibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about once, once you have the urge 
once you've lived your big life, what it looks like now to to get it out there. What does you know decentralized publishing look like? Obviously, we have um, Passage Press. We you know we alluded to a growing work of um, online writing. Obviously, you know there um, writing has been coming out of blogs and like you know the alt lit scene for. For, for decades and, and now Twitter is becoming um, a, a bigger medium. You know, you have Delicious Tacos who's, who's posting whole stories and that is leading to more sales of his book than, he, than he's ever had before. So I guess I'm wondering, uh, aside from submitting to Passage Press, which every, every one of our listeners should do, Philip Lomez's slush pile, what other avenues are there for people who want to participate in this world, but, but find that the, the mainstream, you know, cold submission isn't for them. Yeah. I mean, it depends on where you're starting from. So if you're just like a young person or, you know, you're just newly awakened to this desire to write and be a writer, um, there's no substitute for just sitting down quietly and to yourself and just writing and writing and writing and once you finish your first thing and you fall in love with what you've done, don't show anybody because it probably <laughs> is not very good. Mm-hmm. And you'll come to discover that in, in pretty uh, short order. And it's a mistake to think that the first thing you're going to write, you're just publish on the internet and people are going to fall in love with you. You'll be, you'll be disappointed. So, um, you know, this is a harsh lesson that many writers have to learn. I was fortunate enough to begin my writing journey before you know, Twitter or really was around. I mean, I guess there were blogs and stuff, but um, I would be, oh my God. Ter- I, first of all, I probably would have published on a blog or something or a Substack, and I would be so embarrassed to have that stuff exist now. So I caution any young writer um, from being too hasty and sharing their work uh, with the public like that. I mean, really um, work at it and work at it and work at it. There's no substitute for that. And when the time is right, uh, it's too facile to say you'll know, but um, you, you know you'll you'll sort of tepidly get it out there, close friends, people you trust, and they'll let you know. And frankly, I do think actually submitting to contests and to submitting to places that you think have the credibility to evaluate whether or not what you're doing is good is a good way to sort of measure your your worth and where you're at. And if you get a rejection, don't worry about it. That's like that's a hazard. That's a that's an occupational hazard. Get used to it. You know you're gonna face a lot of rejection. Um, and so just keep working at it. Okay. Now, if you're past that stage and you're like, okay, I know what I have is like pretty good. I've been through the ringer. I know how to sort of self-evaluate. I know this stuff deserves to be out there. Um, if you feel like you're the type of person who can establish a following, like as a Twitter personality, um, you know, do that and you can sell your book, um, through the force of your, your Twitter persona, but that's like not an easy thing to do and can take years to establish. Your other option is to find one of these small publishers. Um, and there are a number of them. We're one of them. There are several others. But I don't, I actually sort of disagree with the idea that this is like decentralized publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there actually can be such a thing as decentralized publishing for the reasons I explained earlier. Books present a unique hurdle in terms of the time and sort of uh, uh, attention commitment needed to vet what is good and what is not good. You need someone 
or someones or some institution to tell you what is worth your time and money. Um, and so I think rather what we're trying to do is stand up just a new center in some sense or a alternative center um, where there's what amounts to the same basic structure. It's just uh, being maintained by people who hopefully share your interests or hew closer to your sort of artistic needs as a writer or reader than the current sort of superstructure that's in place. Um, and uh, yeah, that's my answer. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but that's what comes to mind. That's great. That's a great answer. Yeah. I mean, just the last thing I would say in summary is uh, I don't, I don't sort of pretend to have the answers to these questions. Like I think it's really good for this ecosystem and this environment to get as many perspectives into it as possible and, and sort of different points of view, artistic points of view, different points of view about these economies and how they might be built and shared. And um, there's there, it needs like a lot of parts and people and potentially people trying new and different stuff so we can figure out what works and so we can figure out how to sort of um, build a, a, a sort of viable three-dimensional ecosystem um, that can serve people's sort of not just like artistic needs, but I think we really do need narratives that can help help us sort of navigate, you know, the current year, the, the modern world. And, and we don't really have that. It's just very fractured. And um, we need these reference points, these shared reference points. Any sort of cohesive culture needs to have sort of these unspoken shared reference points of the kind we were talking about before. So Sorry, I'm rambling, uh, but that's that's kind of what I want to say uh, as a as a last point. And then I'll just say, yeah, please, uh, passage.press. We have a bunch of stuff online now ready to go. There's passage price three. We're going to be accepting submissions through the end of January, if not a little longer. Twenty thousand dollars in prize money we're giving out. Wow. To find Twenty thousand. Uh, art. Yeah. Twenty thousand whole dollars, man. Um, which is, is a lot, dollars? a lot, a lot for this space. Uh, it, it can be American dollars. We, uh, we also pay out in crypto. So, you know, uh, dealer's choice on that one, or I guess, uh, submitter's choice on that one. <laughs> um, we have, uh, uh, man's world, which is a magazine run by our friend, Rye nationalist. We are going to be doing a print, uh, subscription for man's world. We're also, um, as the publisher for man's world, giving, um, Ren, you know, money and support. Uh, and in particular, we're looking for writers. And in particular, we're looking for maybe people who feel sort of stuck in the, uh, you know, mainstream or legacy periodical world and want to find a place where they can write the stuff they've always wanted to write. Um, please send it our way, you know, and, and we'll pay you for your work. We want to be able to pay people for their work. So essayists, if you have short stories, if you want to write a feature piece, you have some cool idea and you just need money to go travel down to uh, Mexico and embed yourself with uh, you know, the Sinaloa cartel and you want to write something about that, well, let us know and, and we can hit you up with some money and let you go do that. Um, and we're also, we have, a, we, we acquired a new imprint, uh, Mystery Grove Books, where uh, we're publishing or republishing old out of print stuff. Um, and we're going to be adding to that catalog as well. So again, passage.press, come to our site, buy our books, submit your stories, 
if you have a manuscript that you think is really good, um, want to send it my way, you can do so editor at passage.press. Uh, it'll take me probably a few months to look at it and probably another few months to get back to you, but I'll, I'm doing my best and, uh, we love to see new work. So that's about it. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll include links in the show notes to everything you've mentioned to make it, make it easy on anyone submitting. And yeah, uh, man, thank you so much for joining us. This was an awesome conversation and obviously a topic near and dear to my heart. I think that, you know, wherever you come at this from the political spectrum, I think we can agree that if you care about art, something is not quite right in the way that writing is being made, distributed, filtered, and consumed. And I think it's really important to have projects like yours out there trying to um, disrupt that process. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for what you're doing. And uh, it was awesome talking to you. Thanks, Bitch. I appreciate it. Habsel as well. Great talking to you guys. All right. And uh, to everyone out there, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time on the Network Age. Thank you for listening. For more Network Age content, you can find us on Twitter at Network Age Pod. We've also got a beautiful new presence online, which you can find at ookbar.network forward slash age. Also, find us on Apple or Spotify. Leave us a good review, and we may even read it on air. Until next time, this has been the Network Age.